0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Philippians. We are in Philippians chapter 4 this morning. We are dealing with the uh, opening verses of this chapter and talking about two women that uh, were having trouble getting along, and Paul was urging them In fact, he admonished each one of them. I urge Iodia and I urge Syneche. And then beyond the urging, he actually assigned a third person to help them. And uh, it's translated, rather than given as a name, it's translated as true companion. I think a better understanding is to take this actually as a name, indeed truly named Zizigus. So if you take this as a proper name instead of of an adjective, or a noun, then uh, his name would be And I'll put it up here on the slide if you want to know how to spell Zizigus. S Y Z Y G O S. What a great Scrabble word that would be if uh, you could do that. But Zizigus. S Y Z Y G O S, and uh, and he's the one that's going to help. And as I said previously, uh, if he's naming these two women and uh, and they're the ones that are at fault, they're the ones that are disobedient to the Word of God, that need to have a repentance, need to have a change of thinking, uh, then it makes no sense to leave the helper anonymous. Why why would his name not be mentioned if we're going to mention these two women's names? And so I agree with uh, with those uh, in the commentaries and others that believe that Zizigas is the truly named one that Paul calls upon to help here in this in this chapter. All right. So this is where we are. We'll pick up here after a word of prayer. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. It would do us no good to sit here this morning in carnality. So let's uh, let's humble ourselves before him and uh, ask for his blessing on our time in his word, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning. And uh, once again, Father, The sun rose, it's a new day, and uh, your mercies are renewed. Great is thy faithfulness. Father, we call upon your faithfulness this morning in the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, that in our church age, that each one of us is a believer priest permanently indwelled by God the Holy Spirit. And we give you the praise and glory that this morning the Spirit of truth will be teaching us as we uh, open our eyes to your word. So, Father, bless our time, teach us and equip us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Alright, and so moving past this slide, we're talking about Yodi and Sineke. And really, if we have the, uh, the bad news about their, uh, need to cooperate, and clearly in verse two, it's not good. It says, I urge Yodi and I urge Sineke to live in harmony in the Lord, to think the same. It's a, a verb of thinking, and they need to have like-mindedness. They need to think the same, which is the, the Christ-like thinking from chapter two. But to live in harmony means that the presently not now doing that, <laughs> that whatever it is that, uh, that they have between each other and that's keeping them from having the like-minded thinking, uh, that has to stop. That has to stop. And now if we were left, if this was the only description we had, then I think we'd be like... Um, Doubting Thomas, somebody else that I think has a bad rap, that uh, he gets mentioned in one chapter in one incident where uh, he wants to poke his finger somewhere, and and then he's stuck with the label Doubting Thomas for the next two thousand years, and you know we kind of would like to say, well maybe there's a uh, you know there's some mitigating circumstances or there's additional information that that can uh, play against that, and that's the case here with these two women, and when you look at verse three. Uh, Paul actually describes tremendous ministry that they had, that they were struggle sharers. They were fellow struggle sharers. And the idea of struggle is soon athleo, uh, where we get our our English word for athletics, uh, an athletic competition or an athletic struggle. And so they were fellow athletes, teammates, if you want to use that expression, but fellow strugglers in the gospel, as we see here. Help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. And that's important that we recognize that we have to forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. If we're going to be banking on past victories or, or past ministry, uh, these two women, you know, they had everything there. They had tremendous ministry with Paul, with Clement, with these others that are mentioned here clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life and so they've done a lot and they uh, they could say they've laid up treasure in heaven and they're they're uh, they're good to go And, and paul might be tempted to just let other things slide since they've got a track record in the past no not at all that's worldly thinking whatever is in your past great glad it's there but what are you doing now are you looking forward now are you reaching forward to what lies ahead now And that becomes the imperative. And so they have to live in harmony, and uh, the the current uh, issues have to stop. So uh, I enjoy that very much. All right. Now, with this mention of the book of life, we get past Clement. We get to point H, then, as we study the book of life. This is Paul's only reference to the book of life. It's well stated throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament. We have many references to the book of life. And we looked at these on Wednesday. I want to look at them again here this morning to make sure we're solid on them. But the idea of the book of life that God himself is a writer, God himself communicates and God puts it in writing so that it's there on display so that you can check it out. Remember, it's noble minded to search the scriptures and see if these things are so. And God not only is uh, is absolutely true in all that he says, but he also puts himself under oaths. puts himself under a vow. He puts things in writing so that they can be verified, they can be validated and checked out. And, uh, and I can appreciate that. And so if you do a book of life study, as, as we're going to do here today, recognize it's coming from a, a pretty broad spectrum of Scripture, starting with the law, starting with Moses in uh, Exodus 32, going to the Psalms in, uh, in the writings of David. Most of these are Davidic in uh, Psalm 40. And we'll, we'll look at these. Psalm 56, Psalm 69, Psalm 139. In fact, I want to say all of them are Davidic, but uh, don't quote me on that. We'll check it out here in a moment. And then Daniel, of course. And then Jesus quotes Daniel. And then, uh, of course, we have Daniel and Revelation that are so linked in uh, in the issues there. And so this is Paul's only reference. It's not a big deal to Paul, but he does mention it here. And why does he mention it here? I think It's uh, significant here as yet another reminder, like he did in chapter 3, that our citizenship is in heaven, that by referencing the Lamb's Book of Life, by referencing uh, where our names are recorded, it's another reminder that no matter what names are listed in the Roman colony's civic registry, you want to boast about that all you want as far as your name being recorded in the civic registry of Rome and whatever your rank is, senator, knight, Free man, whatever you're. Uh, if you're just head count, if you're at least if you're head count, you're still a citizen and you're still above a slave in the Roman pecking order. So uh, no matter what names are listed in the Roman colony civic registry, the fact that our citizenship is in heaven, that our name is written down, is uh, is a beautiful thing. And we all can rejoice in that. Don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but that your names are recorded in heaven. That's uh, our Savior's statement there in Luke ten twenty. So let's take a look at these. If you're familiar with these or not, uh, there's a lot of debate with respect to these. And so I'm going to give you my opinion this morning, and uh, you're free to accept it or reject it as you will, because it's just my opinion. And I urge you, search the scriptures, see if these things are so. If you come to a different opinion, then there you go. I'd like to hear about it. And uh, we can be relaxed over different opinions. Exodus 32, though, we have our first reference here to to this book. And I also think that intellectual honesty demands that you be relaxed about this in particular when different expressions are used, when different phrases are used, that there is legitimate... Open question, open debate, and that uh, that faithful men can come down on different sides of of these questions because not everybody would list every one of these verses as a lamb's book of life reference. Okay, and we want to be clear on that. We want to be fair to what the text says. So in Exodus thirty-two, uh, Moses is up on the mountain getting the <clears throat> the tablets, and the people are down there having their idolatry as Aaron uh, builds the golden calf for him. I think we're we're very familiar with this chapter. Moses comes down and has his temper tantrum and smashes the tablets. And then, uh, of course, he has to go back up and make two more, all right? Always a price to pay for the temper tantrum. But now it's curious to me <clears throat> when we get to the intercessory prayer here. So um, I guess picking up here on verse 30. On the next day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin and now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And we have a remarkable role that Moses plays here where he is willing to be the intercessor. He's willing to make atonement and is going to make the attempt to make atonement because they're clearly guilty. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has committed a great sin and they have made a God of gold for themselves. And and this is just such a, a beautiful story for what it reflects and what it might have reflected under other circumstances. Um particularly with Adam and Eve. What might Adam have done had he not eaten the fruit? What might Adam have done if he had decided to become an, an intercessor? If he could have uh, redeemed or atoned for Eve's transgression? Uh, well, we don't know because he didn't, but here's Moses now who desires to be the substitute, who desires to be the, the one making atonement, see? And look how he phrases this. And so he's confessing the sin. This is intercessory confession. Moses didn't take part in the idolatry. The people did. But he is naming this sin. He is the one that's confessing this sin. So he says, but now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from your book, which you have written. Blot me out from your book, which you have written. So this is the offer. And he's offering himself in their place, See. And it's curious to me how this is expressed. So, in any event, my conclusion, my opinion, this book which you have written is the Lamb's Book of Life. This is the book that, uh, that for a name to be blotted out of it means that you are not gonna go to heaven when you die, that you're gonna, you're gonna spend eternity in the lake of fire. And, uh, so we learn a lot actually from this very first use of the term Book of Life, because we have the invitation to blot out my name, as Moses says here. And, uh, the willingness to, to experience spiritual death on behalf of others who deserve the wrath of God, right? And so what a type of Christ as this is played out. Now, <clears throat> to be fair, it's not, uh, the, the words, Lamb's Book of Life, are not in this text, and so it is legitimate to question whether or not, uh, it is a, a parallel text and whether or not it should be thought of in that way. But it is a single book, and it is in heaven, and it is a book that God Himself has written, and, uh, and it does reference the expression of blotting out, which we will see elsewhere connected to the Book of Life. And then verse 33 the lord said to moses whoever has sinned against me i will blot him out of my book i will blot him out of that my book and so that answer itself i think teaches us a lot that answer explains some different things now we can relax a little bit this morning before we look at any other passages, because this is where Arminian theology steps in, and a lot of people try to use these kind of verses to scare uh, other believers into thinking you can lose your salvation, all right? So we're going to clear the decks immediately on that. No one can lose their salvation. We accept eternal security as the as the doctrine of, of Scripture. Uh, but we do, at the same time, have these expressions where we have them. There's too many of them. Uh, we can't ignore them or pretend they're not there. There is a blotting out activity. God blots out names. As it says here, uh, whoever has sinned against me, think of this as a whosoever statement, whosoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. And so now we have a problem. Because now we have uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all of us uh, you know, guilty before the Lord. All of us are uh, vulnerable and uh, should be eligible to be blotted out and cast into hell. The fact is, though, is that God in His grace provided a means whereby we can be saved so that uh, our names are not blotted out, so that uh, Jesus takes the penalty on our behalf. And so we're no longer reckoned as the sinners. We're reckoned now as saints where we have the righteousness of God. And so that becomes, I think, the beautiful picture uh, on that. So the... uh, uh, we mentioned this slightly on Wednesday. I don't mind repeating it this morning. But my conclusion is, if you're going to synthesize all of this, and I'll tell you this up front so that when we go through these other verses, it'll, it'll fall into place. <clears throat> but my conclusion is, is that God the Father originally wrote in the, in the book of life, He wrote the name of every human being that ever existed, that ever would exist, from Adam to the end of time. And that, because it's His desire for none to perish. It's His desire for all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so I believe God in His grace, God in His love, God in His mercy, He wrote those names down. Even though in His foreknowledge, He knows the lost, He knows the unbelievers, He knows the ones that are not elect, the ones that will perish without eternal life. But He writes the names down anyway. He writes the names down anyway as part of what He does when He nails this decree to the cross, when He judges sin in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so then practically speaking, uh, with all the names written down in the book of life, when does he blot those names out? Because he says, uh, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But it doesn't say when he will blot them out of his book. And so I believe, as I synthesize all these passages and reconcile them, I believe that he waits. He waits until that unbeliever draws his last breath and physically dies. That once that unbeliever dies, it comes in, It's given unto man once to die, and after that to judgment. That once that unbeliever dies without Christ, without eternal life, then is when the Father, in sadness, the Father will then blot that name out of the book of life. So that when the book is opened, remember the book doesn't even get opened until the great white throne judgment, that when death and Hades are del- delivered up and all the unbelievers are standing before the great white throne judgment, then he opens up the book, and whoever's name is not found written in the book, uh, it, uh, shall be saved. And so we have the, the issue there. All right, so that's Exodus 32. And the first use, the first use. And uh, if, uh, like I say, if there's others that conclude this is not the book of life, well then, uh, okay, great. Uh, explain to me what book this is then. I'd like to know. I want to learn. Uh, to me, it seems that this is the book that is being discussed. All right, <clears throat> over to Psalm 40. David in Psalm 40 addresses this book. Psalm 40. And this is um, another uh, Davidic hymn, and it's one that's very um, much a blessing for us. It's quoted in Hebrews. This is uh, the book that speaks of our Savior and His incarnation, a body you have prepared for me. In the scroll of the book it is written. And so... uh, Just picking up with verse six, sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. And this gets adjusted slightly when it goes from a David application to a Jesus application. And uh, my ears you have opened becomes a body you have prepared for me when it gets written in the book of Hebrews. All right. And so there's there's translation issues there. There's doctrinal issues there. Uh, When we see the typology of David and the fulfillment of Jesus, uh, I think it helps and it makes sense. In any event, then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. Now, again, what book is this? What scroll is this? What is this talking about? Because this is something that God has written. This is something that God has designed. So he has a book. And in the book of life, those, if your name is blotted out, then you're not, uh, not going to spend eternity with him. But if your name is not blotted out, how can that be? Because we're all sinners. So how is there any name written in that book? Well, the book goes on to describe that a substitute is going to come and do the will of God. And it's not going to be a, a, an animal. It's not going to be a ritual a liturgical sacrifice. It's going to be Jesus himself. I come to do your will. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. And so this book, this book includes names of the righteous, the blotted out names of the of the unredeemed. And it includes the purpose of Jesus Christ in coming to do the will of the Father. The work of Jesus Christ in his first advent to be our substitute. Okay? Again, my opinion is this is also the book of life. I may be wrong, and I may change my opinion (laughs) in uh, future studies. I may come to to say, no, this is a different book, that this is a scroll. This is a book between the Father and the Son, and it's separate from the book of life. And uh, in which case, I'll have to come back and change this slide. Go over to Psalm 56. Psalm 56, we have more writing. God is a writer. He is a speaker and he's a writer. He's a communicator. I find it interesting that to accomplish creation, he did so verbally. God said, and it was so. All right? The father spoke and the son executed the father's plan. All right, but more writing here in Psalm 56. Uh, Yes, this one is also Davidic, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. And so they are uh, his enemies, his adversaries, just as Jesus would have enemies and adversaries. But he says um, in verse 8, You have taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? So if my tears are in God's bottle, what does that mean? <laughs> okay, that means that God knows uh, about them all. And he knows he's, he's got a big enough bottle to fit. And every tear, he knows every tear I ever shed in the course of my life. And uh, and he's got a bottle. Why, why save tears? Okay, Why look at tears? Why... Why is He a God that even cares over my circumstances? But you have taken account of my wanderings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Again, God has a book. And, uh, you know, it seems to me in the context here that that book is in heaven, that that book is something that God Himself has written. If it's something else, we don't know it. If it's something else, uh, you know, I'd be open to, to learning what it might be. But I accept that this is the Lamb's book of life. That not only includes my name, not only includes uh, the the length of my days, includes my sufferings, my tears. Uh, all of this is in His book, a full uh, a full log on on me. How uh, how amazing is that? Psalm sixty nine, Psalm sixty nine, and so many of these I could get lost in any one of them because. You can go through and see the Davidic history and then see the the, uh, prophetic fulfillment in Christ. Psalm 69 in particular is filled with them in uh, in different things. Again, it's a psalm of David. Uh, There are those that are uh, seeking his death. Uh, It says in verse 8, I've become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. This is true of David. It's true of Jesus. Zeal for your house has consumed me. Uh, David is writing this, but Jesus quotes this as he's uh, or his disciples remember this as as Jesus uh, cleanses the temple. Um, and verse sixteen: Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good according to the greatness of your compassion. Turn to me. He's he's going to be clinging to Jesus or clinging to the Father even throughout the cross and all the uh, the things on the cross uh, down to verse twenty reproach has broken my heart i am so sick and i looked for sympathy but there was none and for comforters but i found none he's abandoned by everybody even peter who said oh no i'll never do that or over my dead body or that'll never happen to you he is abandoned by everybody and he has to be abandoned by everybody because the prophecy said he would be abandoned by everybody uh, when peter and the other disciples decide they're going to thwart prophecy to try to save jesus from something what are they really trying to do how can they thwart prophecy and so uh, they will abandon him. I looked for comforters and there were none. He takes three of them in the garden to pray and they kept falling asleep. So so much for the comfort that, uh, that uh, he might otherwise have on that night before. Verse 21, they gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. Remember that? Does that sound familiar? This was David a thousand years before Christ but then this was Jesus Christ himself on the cross. See, how powerful are these prophecies? This is amazing to me. All right, down to... uh, Then we have uh, some imprecatory prayers on David's behalf. This is a difference. This is a contrast. Jesus never does this because he says um, in verse 24, "'Pour out your indignation on them. May your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. For they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten. And they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded.'" So David prays, add iniquity to their iniquity, and may they not come into your righteousness. So that's a that's an imprecatory prayer, and David has a number of those. We are never commanded to pray those, all right? Not in the age of grace, and Jesus never prayed this. Jesus never prayed this. He hung on the cross, and he said, Father, forgive them. He said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. David would not allow himself, he quoted Psalm 22 uh, while he was on the cross, but he would not quote this, and he would not uh, pray the imprecatory prayer upon his enemies. But David goes on to say, may they not come into your righteousness, may they be blotted out of the book of life, may they not be recorded with the righteous. And there it is, all right? Now this one I think I'm on very solid ground because I have the words right there, book of life, okay? So we can go with that. It doesn't say Lamb's book of life, but I, I accept that this is the book of life. There's only one. And uh, which, which really gets clear uh, by the time you get to Revelation 20 and 21, because there's a whole set of books that record our deeds. And, uh, and it might be that that set of books that record our deeds is also the set of books that record our, uh, our tears and our struggles and the other things. But the book of life is the single volume that uh, contains the names of the righteous. And this is a good description of it here. May they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life. May they not be recorded with the righteous. See, and so, you know, we have the hymns, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there and okay, yeah, my name is written there. I have a new name written down in glory and all of these things that come from this concept that our names are in the book of life and they will not be blotted out. Finally then, Psalm 139 in verse 16. Psalm 139 in verse 16. It is another Davidic psalm. So how about that? Four for four. Okay. David wrote all of these psalms. And uh, in talking about the book of life, and this is a great book, a great chapter, Psalm 139, you can teach the omniscience of God, you can teach the omnipresence of God, the different components of this chapter. Uh, But when you get down to verse 16 and talking about, uh, in fact, this comes up in some pro-life arguments about life in the womb and and birth, uh, the formation here, as it says in verse 13, you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Now that bothers some people, but I love it. I think it's marvelous that when God was putting the, the, the dust together to make Adam, He was making all of us. That God, in His wisdom, because we were all in Adam, and He took that dirt and He formed Adam, He formed all of us. And uh, the beauty of it there. All right, verse 16 Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book, in your book. So again, Is this the Lamb's book of life? I accept that it is. I may change my opinion later, but as of now, uh, this is a single book. It's never spoken of in the plural, never spoken of as books plural, but books singular here in Exodus and in the Psalms, it's a singular book. Uh, In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So we have X number of days, and God appoints this, and God ordains this. In fact, I believe God records this with contingencies, that God uh, records the X number of days that you're going to live upon this earth. But then he also puts in writers in his own record uh, reckoning, because if we honor our father and mother, what's the promise there? We will live long upon this earth. There can be an extension that's granted. And then also there can be a diminishing that's granted in terms of divine judgment. God can take a believer home through sin unto death. And I believe that in when God reckons the names, the days that were ordained for me, that's not just a single variable, single number. I believe that it's, a, I call it the X, Y, Z number of days. The, the, the X number, the extended Y number, or the shortened Z number uh, in, uh, in the foreknowledge of God. All right, when as yet there was not one of them. But it's written in God's book. So God has books, or a book, a, a singular book that's highlighted repeatedly throughout the uh, the Old Testament from Exodus to Psalms, four different Psalms. And then finally, Daniel, Daniel twelve one, And uh, one of the greatest prophecies of the Old Testament is what we have contained in... Uh, chapters 10, 11, and 12. Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Here we go. And what we have in our Bible is Daniel 10, 11, and 12 as one overall message and uh, narrative that starts with Gabriel's visit and uh, the tribulational um, details that come in chapter 11 and all of the end times events when the king of the north and the king of the south are attacking Israel when Antichrist goes in there and uh, and everything that's detailed in Daniel 11, understand that it's not yet happened. That Here we are in 2019, 2018, almost 2019, right? What year is this? And, and this has not yet happened. We're still in the church age. We're not yet in the tribulation. None of this can happen until the church is raptured out. So at that time, at that time, this is the context for Daniel 12.1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. That for the, the uh, most of the tribulation that Israel's given over, Michael is not there to defend them because God has them under discipline. And they, uh, they go through literally hell on earth. And there's, a, um, I mean, the, the, the time of distress that has never happened since there was a nation until this time. But then when the word is given, Michael can arise and he's going to rescue his people. And there will be a time of distress. I just said that. Verse 1. A time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Unique in human history. And at that time, your people. Remember, Daniel was Jew. This is a prophecy of the preservation of the Jewish people. Your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be saved or rescued. All right? So there's the book of life right there in verse 1. in verse 4. No, it's a different book in verse 4. Thank you. And so everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Remember, just because they're racially Jewish doesn't mean they're saved automatically or that they have eternal life. That uh, he's going to gather them from the four corners of the earth, he's going to enter into wilderness judgment with them, and the rebels will be purged, we're told. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 20 details that. It's only born-again regenerate Israel that's going to march up that holy highway and and enter into Jerusalem, singing the Hosanna praises of Psalm 115. And so written in the book, now again, you have a book reference in verse 1, you have a book reference in verse 4. Are these the same books? Are they different books? Is this the uh, the Lamb's book of life in verse 1? Or is this the book of uh, tribulational rescue? Uh, What do we call this book? If it's not the Lamb's book of life, what do we call this book? If uh, if it is meant to be something else, I believe it's the Lamb's Book of Life, that because they're going to have seals put on their forehead, they're going to be protected. God's going to go through and protect those that are His in the tribulation; those that don't take the mark of the beast; those that don't; um, those that get saved during the the tribulation of Israel. All right, so those are the Old Testament references Jesus speaks about it in Luke ten, when the uh, seventy come back rejoicing that they can cast out demons and they seem to have other uh, divine power to do different things. And they're all excited about it. And Jesus says, you're excited about the wrong thing. <laughs> all right. And so these are the 70 and He sends them out two by two and they come back in verse 17. The 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And He said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And boy, here's a theological debate for you. (laughs) Which fall was this? Because there are several in any event. Verse 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents, on scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. You know, talking to these seventy who will all enter into the church age very quickly, the dispensation of the church is the age of divine power. We are the stewardship that's given the armor of God. We are the stewardship that struggle not with flesh and blood but with rulers and authorities and the principalities and powers. The body of Christ is the heavenly people that has the authority to engage in this uh, in this realm. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Your names are recorded in heaven. So this too, I think, is a marvelous reference to the Lamb's book of life. It doesn't have the word book of life. It doesn't have the word lamb, but I accept it as being an equivalent expression. Your names are recorded in heaven, and uh, where else would they be recorded besides the Lamb's book of life? And so that's something to rejoice over. Hebrews twelve twenty three. Here's a glimpse of heaven and the better mountain, Mount Zion. This is the heavenly Zion. And this is where we are positionally as believers. So you thought you were on Cross Park Drive in Austin, Texas. Ha! That's just where your body happens to be seated in a building that won't survive the destructions of the heavens and the earth. But here's a sign. Here's a, a vision of heaven. And here is where we have come to and why the church is so much greater than Israel and uh, they came to a mountain that could be touched to a blazing fire and a darkness and gloom and a whirlwind and a blast of a trumpet. Mount Sinai was a frightening place when Moses gave them the law. But we, that's not our mountain. That's not where we became a covenant people. Uh, Israel was God's earthly people. We are God's heavenly people. And so we, the text says you, I'll just change it to we for us here this morning, have come to Mount Zion. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. This is our position. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, and we are seated in Christ at the right hand of God. This is where we are in Christ. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the myriad of angels. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled. And that's the term that I'm linking with uh, the book of life. Enrolled in heaven when the name when the role is called up yonder right i'll be there that's the that's the issue and we are enrolled you gotta love it and to uh god the judge of all into the spirits of the righteous made perfect next hour in hebrews we're going to talk about perfection and why jesus even though he was perfect had to be perfected and why we very imperfect that we are we get perfected also in our priesthood in christ and uh, the spirits of the righteous made perfect is, uh, is a beautiful description. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So the Lamb's book of life. Finally, then the remaining references are all from the book of Revelation, including the promise to uh, not blot out the names. Revelation 3, 5. Again, eternal security means our names are never blotted out. We are born again. We have eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He has uh guaranteeing to raise us up on the last day. But revelation three, five says he overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. I will not erase his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. This is our reward in the church age. Remember the church are the overcomers because we are in Christ. He who has overcome chapter 13 and verse 8 the lamb of god slain from the foundation of the world this is a verse that has a grammatical puzzle and one that can be answered a couple of different ways but talking about the rise of antichrist and why the world thinks that he's the greatest thing ever And uh, they worship the dragon and they worship the beast and they think this is just the the golden age of humanity and uh, couldn't be further from the truth. And uh, all who dwell on the earth will worship Him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. And so a couple of different things we can do with it here. But I think the, the, the phrase, from the foundation of the world, it can be connected to written in the book, but it can also be connected to the lamb who has been slain. And that's my actual preference in this, in this chapter, that um, whose name has not been written in the book of life uh, from the foundation of the, uh, of the lamb who has been slain from the foundation of the world, I think is a better way to render that. Either way. Uh, Because verse 17 spells it out that this book itself was written before the foundation of the world. Which is why I think chapter 13 got changed the way that it did. But chapter 17 and verse 8. Those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. So this is a book that was written before you and I were around, before we could do anything to earn it or deserve it. Before, uh, that's why it's on, all about grace. There's nothing that we can do to earn or deserve it. These names are written down before the foundation of the world. Finally, Great White Throne in chapter 20. Now, now we, for the first time, we start to see plural books. Everything we've seen up to this has been a single book right? A single referenced book. But now we have a set of books. And so when the dead, the great and the small are standing before the great white throne, there is a set of books that are opened and then a final volume is additionally opened. And then it's not lumped in with the other set. It's kept separate. It's, it's accounted separately. And so in verse 12, I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened. Books, plural. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books, plural, according to their deeds, but, but their eternal life is based upon whether their name is in the book of life, singular, not the books, plural, and I hope we're clear on this, that they're not going to hell because of their deeds, the deeds determine the judgment once they're in hell, but going to hell is determined by not being in the Lamb's book of life, that's a big difference. So, um, death and Hades are thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, in other words, because they were blotted out, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And that's the consequence. It's as simple as that. It's not your deeds, because your deeds are in the books, plural. It's your name in the, in the, in the Lamb's book of life, or not. That's the criteria. And so there you have it. And this is why once you grab this, I mean, once you lock on to this doctrine, it's, it's pretty clear that all of those silly jokes about, uh, am I going to go upstairs? Am I going to go downstairs? Or all those silly jokes about getting to the pearly gates and, and St. Peter you know, wants to know, why should I let you into my heaven or something like that? Um, you've heard those jokes? I hate them. I mean, they're just the dumbest things. I guess, okay, they might be mildly amusing in some ways, but the whole concept... If I'm standing at the judgment seat of Christ, that means I'm in the bride of Christ, I'm in the royal family of God, I'm a church-age saint, the very venue is selected based upon my regenerate status. I wouldn't be at the judgment seat of Christ if I was an unbeliever. I'd be in hell waiting the great white throne if I was an unbeliever. So the fact that at the rapture of the church I stand before the judgment seat of Christ tells you everything right there that uh, that I'm born again, that I have eternal life. But it's not up for, uh, you know, it's not hanging in the balance, if you will, that, you know, do I go upstairs or do I go downstairs kind of a thing. That's all That's all determined. Which also is uh, the same reality for the unbelievers that are in hell right now. They're going to stand before the great white throne on their judgment day. They don't get a second chance. They can They can plead their case and say, hey, there must be some mistake. <laughs> you know, Lord, Lord, we did this, we did this, we did all these other things in your name. And he says, "Depart from me, I never knew you, and so uh all that time in hell uh, lamenting the fact that they think they think they don't deserve it, <laughs> they 're going to stand before the judgment seat uh, the great white Throne judgment and be told they deserve it, and every knee will confess uh, will bend, and every tongue will confess, and they got thrown into the lake of fire, all right, so in any event, um, this is I guess all I'll say about the book of life and If we have questions on Wednesday night, I guess we can go into some other passages and talk about the different questions that are there. Uh, But just so we're clear, the book of life is a single book, and it's pass-fail, right? Your name is there or it's not there. And I think it's there as your new name. I think that's your new name that he has written down in glory, and that's the name that he's got recorded there. And Yep, that's you. Here you go. But if your name is not in the Lamb's book of life, because it's been blotted out, the name that would have been yours had you accepted Christ as your Savior. If your name is not in the book of life, then you spend all eternity in the lake of fire. All right. As simple as that. Not confusing it with the plural books that record our deeds, that record the the things that we are judged, that they, the unbelievers, are judged for. All right. Well, then, we're ready to move on to the seven imperatives. Let's get back to Philippians chapter 4. And we have seven imperatives providing a practical how-to recipe for standing firm in the Lord. He had told the uh, beloved and longed for brethren, the joy and crown kindred, he had told to stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. That was the, the chapter heading in verse 1. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And just like uh, with the and Syneche, he gives uh, an expectation Then there's some help along the way in terms of Syzygous that's going to help him out. So too with us. In the imperative to stand firm in the Lord, we have a process. We have a a recipe, if you will. These are the ingredients for standing firm. And uh, if you can uh, fulfill uh, the expectations of verses 4 through 9 in your prayer life, in your meditations, in your attitude, if uh, you fulfill the imperatives of 4 through 9, there's no question you are fulfilling the expectation of verse 1. The believers who live out four through nine are standing firm in the Lord, as verse one calls us to do. So seven imperatives provide a practical how-to recipe for standing firm in the Lord. And it starts with rejoice. In fact, step one and step two are both rejoice. The first two imperatives are rejoice and rejoice some more. All right? And I love that. I love the fact that Paul gives it and he gives it over and over again. He has no problem repeating it. Rejoice and rejoice again. This is verse uh, 4 of Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say rejoice. This imperative was previously issued, and Paul has no problem repeating it. In fact, over and over and over again, Cairo and, and, uh, uh, is, is used here. The verb and the noun both throughout this epistle. Philippians three one. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. What's the benefit in writing it out over and over and over again? When the teacher makes you stand in front of class and write, I will not talk in class, I will not talk in class, I will not talk in class. Is there a benefit to that? Is there a value in that? If it gets written down over and over again, does it stick? Do you think about it? All right. I'm not going to make a confession here this morning. But ask me during the fellowship time. All right. So rejoice always. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me and it is a safeguard to you. This is why repetition is a beautiful thing. It's why God designed His Word this way. It's why He gave us 66 books and not just one book because he's, He reinforces things with the later things written to reinforce the earlier things. And it's, uh, it's a beautiful thing. 1 Thessalonians five sixteen through 18 of course. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. It's a single this, it's a single will of God for you, but in, in, it encompasses the rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. So we rejoice. By the way, you understand that rejoice is a, is, the, is a synonym for praise. Rejoice is a synonym for thanksgiving, that they're all interconnected, that rejoicing is not just, you know, throw a party and, and gratify yourself. Uh, rejoice is, uh, is praise the Lord give praise to God because it's a response to the grace of God. And uh, same thing with thanksgiving. It's a response to the grace of God. If you take grace out of thanksgiving, it's not thanksgiving. It's not, uh, by definition, it's not thanksgiving. Because where you know where's the Eucharistia if there's no chorus? Uh, you have to have chorus so or you don't have Eucharistia. You don't have thanksgiving without grace. And really thankfulness. That's why I don't think, how does an atheist have any thankfulness? Who does he thank? Yeah, there's no God to thank. You just thank your lucky stars? You think the accident of, of Big Bang? You think the, the, the coincidence of, of whatever? What do you, there's nothing to be thankful for unless there is a giver who has provided you all things. And uh, that's where true thankfulness can come about. So uh, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, this is not problem-free rejoicing, but testimony to God's grace and resounding to Christ's glory. Rejoicing. This is not problem-free rejoicing. We don't have an excuse to say, well, right now I'm going through testing, so when that's over and I see the answer, then I'll rejoice. That's not the option. Rejoice now. You know, you're you're waiting for your testing to be over so you can rejoice? That's the wrong attitude. Rejoice now. Rejoice without ceasing. How do you think you're going to endure this testing? Because if you stop rejoicing now, you'll never reach the ecbisus. How do you expect to have the victory here for Jesus Christ when you're not rejoicing now? So this is not problem-free rejoicing, but testimony to God's grace and the resounding to Christ's glory. I would put forth that you can rejoice more when you're under testing because grace is sufficient more when you're under testing. Paul wanted that thorn in the flesh gone. He begged for it three times. And what what did the Lord say? My grace is sufficient for you. So you can rejoice more when the grace is abundant. Matthew 5 12, James 1 2, 1 Peter 1, also uh, verses 6 through 8, also 1 Peter 4 13. It is not problem-free rejoicing. See, that's the, that's the wrong idea. That's the idea of the world, that's the idea of the unbeliever. That, hey, uh, you know, things are great. I don't have too many problems right now, and the ones I have are kind of small, I can handle them. No, things are great. And so, yeah, let's let's throw a party, let's rejoice. Things are good. Wait a minute. <laughs> Not how the Bible defines it. We're not slaves to our circumstances. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 12. You realize what a roller coaster that is? And then you probably do. I mean, we've all been there. We've all been there. When you don't think with divine viewpoint, all you can do is just roll with uh, the with, uh, circumstances. And it's a roller coaster. It's up and down and it uh, never stops and you think it's, it's terrible. But if... Uh, if you allow the, the happenstance to determine your happiness, you know, just think about it. If, if, if you are only happy based upon what happens, that's, uh, yeah, that's not good. And I think maybe that's, I don't know why, why the English language is what it is. We're kind of a mongrel language anyway, but we end up blending some Latin and Greek together with some Germanic and other languages and we just kind of end up with this hodgepodge. That's why we have both thanks and gratitude from different, different origins. But the idea of happiness coming from what happens, that's, that's, that's slavery, right? Man, just a victim of what happens because we can't control what happens. But we're ordered to rejoice. So why would we gauge our happiness or our unhappiness based upon the good things that happen or the bad things that happen? We should be responding to the grace of God with thanksgiving and rejoicing in all circumstances. And so Matthew 5.12, when you have all of these happy are, happy are, happy are. I know it says blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, but we can change that. Happy are, happy are, happy are. Makarios is an adjective of happiness. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. (laughs) Well, wait a minute. That seems to be an oxymoron. I thought you said they were mourning. Now you say they're happy. Yes, happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy are the gentle, they shall inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst, they shall be satisfied. Happy are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Happy are the peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. Happy are those... Now notice, is this problem free? No. Happy are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So be happy about the persecution. See, none of these say rejoice in the the trials, they say rejoice in the Lord. And then it switches. All of these are in the third person, those guys, those guys, those guys, until you get to verse 11. And then it's you guys. It switches to you. It's a a very uh, traumatic shift here from verse 10 to verse 11. Blessed are you. When people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. okay? So now it gets personal. Jesus is speaking to his disciples now in the second person. He says, rejoice and be glad. So here's Paul's imperative of rejoice, and Jesus is saying it here, rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so you want to rejoice in the Lord? You've got to be heavenly minded. You've got to realize that all things are not good, but all things work together for good. You've got to uh, have the, the, the perspective that God has whereby you recognize that momentary light affliction is not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. And so it's not problem-free rejoicing. It is testimony to God's grace, and it is resounding to Christ's glory. For your reward in heaven is great. That's, that's worthy of rejoicing right there. Because I, I don't know about you, I want more than pocket change when I want to cast my crowns at Jesus' feet. I don't want to just toss a couple of little coins at him like a, you know, what an insult. I want to pour everything I've got and more. James 1, 2, consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. I think we know this one. It's not problem-free rejoicing. He doesn't say, consider it all joy, brethren, when your problems are all behind you. <laughs> consider it all joy when everything is going great. Because when is that? Is that in this life? Is that, is that in this angelic conflict? I think the only form of pseudo-tranquility uh, that, that Satan is happy to provide if it gets your eyes off the Lord. Otherwise, we're drafted into the angelic conflict from the day we get saved. From the moment we receive eternal life, we are we have a soldier function, an ambassadorial function, a priestly function, and we're operating in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. Satan demanded permission to sift us like wheat. That's the that's the stewardship we live in. So any any kind of a tranquility arrogance that has believers misguided and drifting in this uh, dream world, this utopia existence of whatever, I think that's just an artificial thing. Satan blinds the minds of the of the complacent to think that yeah, things are great right now so that you fail the prosperity test and don't give glory to Jesus Christ. So consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now you can know that and still not like it and, uh, and yet rejoice because uh, God tells you to and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. If we avoid this, if we run from this, if we do everything we can to stay out of these kind of circumstances, we're diminishing our glory, we're diminishing the reward we can throw at Christ's feet. We're acting contrary to the will of God. We're we're defying the very purpose for why we're here. Jesus first advent was suiting him for his present ministry as the apostle and high priest of our confession. Our ministry here is suiting us for what we're going to do. We're going to be his helpers. We're going to be his bride. We're going to be the servants of the new covenant when Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. So uh, we better embrace all the perfection that we can get, which means all the testing we can get here in this life. First Peter 1, 6 through 6-8. And all these great things that we have in Christ... Marvelous things that we have in Christ. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is our position as church-age believer priests. Israel's hope was always future. Our hope is present. Our hope is now. We, we live in this living hope. This present reality of our blessings in Christ. To obtain an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so here we are. We're we're born, we're saved, we're secure. We're waiting for the ultimate salvation when we're face-to-face with Jesus Christ. What a great thing. Can we end the chapter now? (laughs) Verse 6, "'In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary,' and guess what? It is necessary, right?' you have been distressed by various trials. So in the meantime, while we're, we're not just doing nothing, we're not just saved and waiting to go to heaven when we die, there's, there's a whole lot of work to be done between now and then, including these various trials, which are necessary, so that the proof of your faith, the demonstration of your faith, the exhibition of it, we grow in that endurance, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The tested believers are the glorified believers, the rewarded believers. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. This is our present walk. What a a design. You know, and how uh, infantile, how childish to think that, uh, you know, just like a little kid, you know, make my problems go away. I don't like this. Make it stop. No, that's not how God operates. He, we grow the way Christ grew. He learned obedience through the things that He suffered. We likewise. Over to chapter 4. I'm out of time. But 4.13 verse 12 says, why are you shocked? Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. You know, you're looking around thinking, what's wrong with me? No, nothing wrong. Everything's right. If angelic conflict is ramped up, then you're, you're doing what you should be doing. So don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. There's a proportion there. There's a ratio. Heaven is not equal. There will be greatly rewarded believers and less rewarded believers and unrewarded believers that threw it all away. Losers at the judgment seat of Christ that have their resurrection body and nothing else. They're saved yet so as through fire, but they have no gold, silver, and precious stone divine good production. It's all wood, hay, and stubble. And so to the degree that you share, you want, a fellow, you want the fellowship of his sufferings? This is what it's about in the sufferings of Christ. All right. So rejoice always. Again, I will say rejoice. The third imperative is a passive imperative. And we'll come back to this on Wednesday. It's a passive imperative. How do you obey a passive imperative? I understand an active imperative, you've got to do something. But a passive imperative, you've got to let something happen. Let, let something happen. And uh, I say, well, that's easy. Just let it happen. Not Not as easy as you might think. Because there's a lot of things you're told to let happen and They're not maybe the most pleasant things to let happen, but God tells you to let it happen. All right. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for your truth. Father, thank you for the living and abiding Word of God. It's hard to imagine it was written so long ago, Father, because it is so applicable to right here, right now, the very testing that uh, this congregation is going through. And so I thank you that you bring these blessings to our focus, that we might learn them, that we might live them, that, Father, uh, by faith we can uh, express every one of these doctrinal concepts in a way that glorifies your Son. So uh, open our eyes to see these things. Work in us to rejoice, Father, uh, to rejoice in the Lord. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.